Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All right. Well, I am in luck this hour, and uh, hopefully you are too. We are joined for the hour by one of my absolute favorite guests, not only on this show, but one of my absolute favorite guests on all of radio, a man who knows a great deal about space, a man who knows a great deal about uh, astronomy, a man who knows a great deal about aviation, a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in all of those subjects. I am very, very pleased to welcome back to our program Steve Cates a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Steve, it is great to talk with you again. Thanks so much for joining me. Well, always a pleasure, Frank. Great to be back here on the other side of midnight. Thank you again. What have you been up to since last we uh, crossed paths? Well, actually, we spent a lot of our time with this Perseid meteor shower, but we're immersed here in Arizona, where I'm broadcasting from, in Phoenix, in the suburbs, with the onset of the annual monsoon here. So I would say out of maybe a month of, you know, 30 days, We've had, sadly, about 20-plus days of clouds here and some Mm. horrendous rain. We all need the rain. But in between that, we've been doing some little seminars up in Sedona, one of our great places that we go with our friends and fans, talking about these different things. And hopefully, Frank, as we do with this particular program, give all of your listeners out there a real scoop on some of the great things that are happening as the weather here gets hopefully a little cooler. But all across the listening audience for the other side of midnight, we're going to be talking about things that we can tell people how to see things as the hopeful skies uh, as we move into the fall season. It's coming up. Absolutely. And uh, for people tuning in, uh, looking for primary results from uh, Alaska or any other late-breaking primary results, I will bring them to folks as we get that information. So you don't have to go anywhere. As soon as news breaks on that front, we'll bring it to your attention. But... Uh, When we talk about space travel and when we talk about America's role in space travel, inevitably that lends itself to a discussion about the Apollo project and landing on the moon. Uh, It gets talked about all the time, especially we recently had the anniversary of that 1969 moon landing. And a lot of people found themselves reminiscing about it, getting nostalgic about it and wondering what's next when it comes to space travel and what's next when it comes to lunar exploration. We haven't been to the moon since the early 1970s, and there's something called the Artemis Moon Mission, which aims to change that. What's the latest with Artemis? Where are we now with all that? Well, it's the next generation of the spacecraft, meaning the large rocket, which is the SLS rocket, Space Launch Systems. This Artemis One rocket is quite fascinating, and we're going to be hearing so much about it in the next month or so because there might be, everybody pay attention to this one, there might be a launch as early as August the 29th on a mission, Frank, that will last over 40 days, a replicant in a way of what Apollo 8 did back in 1968 when we watched the three astronauts read from the Bible as they went around the moon on Christmas Eve. But this rocket, just to put it in perspective, some 321 feet tall, it generates, how about this, 8.8 million pounds of thrust. That's 15% more thrust than the mighty Saturn V, which is still, in my opinion, one of the great feats of technology for spacecraft. But right now, it's slowly going to be moving. And I think if my information is correct, 
this past evening on Tuesday the 16th out of the gigantic vehicle assembly building where they store these rockets, even as way back to the Saturn V. It's making the four-mile trip to Launchpad 39B, and it's being moved on this amazing crawler that people may have seen from Apollo days called a Crawler Transporter 2. Now, if you think your vehicle out there, unless you're driving an electric car, gets bad gas mileage, think about this particular vehicle. It gets 42 feet to the gallon. Isn't that incredible? So if you've ever seen one of these things move along, it crawls, and that's its name. But what makes this rocket, Frank, in my opinion, so amazing, it's powered primarily by four RS-25 rockets. It's a mixture of liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen. And in that first stage, it stores 730,000 gallons of fuel. This is an amazing machine, and hopefully what will happen, it also has two solid rocket boosters on each side, which are reminiscent of the days of the space shuttle. This rocket, hopefully when launched, is the first iteration of the Artemis series. They're even talking about later SLS iterations. How about this? 9.5 million pounds of thrust to hopefully get us to the moon. And on this one, not to take too much time on it, but it's, I think, fascinating stuff. There'll be three basic dummies, no humans on this particular mission, and one of them has an actual name. One of them is called Moonkin Campos named in honor of Arturo Campos, who was an Apollo 13 engineer. And they're going to be strapping all these, you know, anthropomorphic figures, dummies, with all sophisticated uh, arrays of electronics. And there's even one dummy on board that's going to be utilizing some sort of, like, piece of body armor, but to protect it from radiation in space. And it's going to be an amazing journey to the moon. The two other dummies are called Helga and Zohar, and they'll be doing various tests. So, Get set. And there's a lot of artifacts that are going to be put up there. They're sending toys up there, the little Snoopy doll. They're going to send a bunch of Apollo 11 artifacts and even a bolt. How about this? One of the connecting bolts to one of the F-1 engines from the Saturn V. Frank, this is an amazing way to get to the moon and hopefully, to answer everybody's concerns, maybe put humans back on the moon as early, maybe a little optimistic here, we don't know, but I'll be positive, by 2024. How so about that? That, that beginning, the 40-something day flight, that's going to be August of this year that that begins? Yes, absolutely. Wow. That's that's what they're planning. And there's a couple of other launch windows that may, you know, if there's bad weather, they always have an option. So it could go into early September. But no, it, it's surprising because we haven't heard too much about this. And a great, you know, the great science that Elon Musk is doing with SpaceX has been really generating all the news. Jeff Bezos, of course, with Blue Origin. Now it's NASA's turn to come back strong. But this rocket, you know, if people take a look at it, Google it, just check it out. It's really long, and it's been long in the tooth because they've really had this design for so long. They just haven't had either the funding or the team to get it ready as early as we would want. Because, again, the NASA budget, if you really look at other expenditures in this country, I don't know the exact dollars, but it's really microscopic. In, compared to, in comparison to so many of the other things that the federal government supports. That, that is for sure. By the way, we are going to take uh, listener calls this hour. If you have questions about anything that's happening in space or anything you're seeing in the sky, whether it has to do with the Artemis Project or something else, uh, we're going to have Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, answer your questions, which is a real treat that uh, he makes himself available for 
audience interrogatives like that. 800-848-922. That's 800-848-9222 if you want to comment or if you want to question, uh, Steve, about anything that's happening skywise. Now, the reason that they would include, I understand the mannequins, certainly, but the reason they would include artifacts from the Apollo 11 mission, which I would think are pretty rare, it's, is it just a sense of nostalgia that they're doing that? Why why include uh, these artifacts from a 50-year-old lunar mission on this Artemis mission? Well, it's a great question, and it's really going back to just simple thing. It's nostalgia, Frank, and that's exactly what they're trying to do is maybe stir up some emotion here, positive, of course, about how we're going to return and look at who came before us. I mean, the great Apollo program that cost billions of dollars even back in the late 60s and early, early into the 1970s. But what's fascinating about this is now we're going to see the first team of female astronauts, rightfully so, to go to the moon to be the who we don't know. I mean, I'm looking to interview some of them on my, on my other shows, but there's a big group, probably about 20 or 30, so I'm going to hopefully go to each one of them, and maybe I'll be lucky to get, uh, by chance, whoever would be the first female astronaut on the hmm. moon. But that's exciting, I think. But I think, really, it's nostalgia. And there's a lot of things that are involving schools. A lot of the STEM and STEAM programs have sent up different drawings and little things to keep kids inspired because who's the next generation, right, Frank, of astronauts? It's uh, not me at 66, even though John Glenn went up on the shuttle after he went around the Earth as our first American to orbit the Earth. That's something that I think is so positive because when you talk to young children like yourself and so many families out there, how many kids are not interested in space? You know, you hear most of the children, they want to learn about this, and it's exciting to them. So it's pretty much nostalgia and a hope and a positivity for the future for the for the young people. Do, do you think there has been a change in the the interest that uh, that younger po- folks have in in space exploration it would not it was not unusual 30 40 50 years ago to have a lot of children say that their career aspiration was to be an astronaut yes. is that less common these days and if so why do you think that is well unfortunately the the economics of the world i think dictate a lot of this and sadly as we're going through this deep part you know whether we're going through the deep part of the galaxy that's helping us to see this inflation just kidding but when <laughs> economic things come about right, rightfully so people are not as concerned they want to put naturally food on the table for their families and of course that's exactly what every good person's trying to do out there so you would probably have a large group of people during these economic times that may not be so good but it all depends on who you ask and you're asking me i think when times get tough the argument could be from some people, hey, why are we spending all this money on space when we should be doing and say, one, we could go down the whole list. It would take hours. Let's clean up the environment. Let's, of course, change the climate. Let's, of course, do all kinds of things to break the bread and and keep it down here and feed people and house them. But there again, there is a large upswing, I think, or an uptick with many families, too, that are interested in seeing their children see their dreams. And that's that's a beautiful thing. I think. If I have one complaint on a daily basis, it's that I don't have enough hours or minutes in the day. I'm wondering if this next story is going to affect that. Apparently, the rotation of the Earth is speeding up. Is there any chance that this will give me another hour or two to get things done in a given day? <laughs> you ask it very well, but it's very interesting, Frank. You know, scientists, good, bad, or indifferent, you know, we have all different types of scientists out there. Some know their stuff, some don't. And, of course, folks, you're smart enough not to believe everything you read on the Internet. But scientists have discussed this, and they've said back in June, the specific day was June 29th, 
They found out that the day, through their intricate measuring system, was 1.59 milliseconds shorter than days that they've measured in the past. Mm. And immediately that says if you're doing something, it means that something's happening to the Earth. So the Earth's rotation may be spinning faster, thus the days being shorter. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't yet been able to measure 1.59 milliseconds. It's probably what? If we stretched it out, you'd see this tiny little space in there that's just infinitesimal. But to scientists, that's a big deal. Now, people may wonder why. One theory says that it's a normal cycle of the Earth that happens over a course of maybe 14 years. There's something called the Chandler effect, which happens from a scientist that you know proposed this theory back in the late 1890s that the Earth has many independent wobbles that it goes through. Why? Some speculate that deep within the Earth, we realize that way down, if we were to dig, and no matter how far humans have dug into the Earth, it's pretty deep, but nothing like what I'm about to describe. If we could get to the outer core, and if we got to the inner core, the Earth is literally extremely hot in there. So some theories say that there's a large magma bubble, big, could be the size of a continent, that has pushed its way up causing the Earth to have a wobble in its orbit. Now, that's one. I can't prove it. Some scientists say that that could be something causing an unequal distribution of mass around the planet and a change even that tiny and infinitesimal. Now, remember, back in January, we had something that exploded an underwater volcano called the Hunga Tonga volcano. And I was sitting there, like many people, it was January 15th, and I'm looking at all these weather images from the satellites. And lo and behold, I didn't capture it live. One of our spacecraft caught this underwater volcano exploding like a giant nuclear explosion out in the Pacific. Why do I mention it? Because that ripple caused the Earth to actually shake, and the residual cloud of material, Frank, went around the Earth a couple of times. Who knows? Maybe that's something. And the last theory, and that comes from astrophysicists, they say, and I don't know if this is accurate, but this is what they say. And did I read it on the Internet? Yes, I did. Here's that idea. That in space, the strange conundrum of dark matter and dark energy still confounds scientists. So what if the dark energy problem, which is meaning with galaxies that are farther away, are not slowing down as they move out into space, they're accelerating. So what if something, who knows, this is their idea, is leaking through into our solar system, but then why are not the other planets also speeding up in rotation? So it's probably an Earth-caused phenomenon and I don't think there's much to worry about. Uh, but yes, we may want to get that 1.59 milliseconds back, and we'll probably do something to the calendar in many years to come. But I didn't notice it, and I don't know if you did. No, I, I did not. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Mike is calling from Neptune. We don't think it's the planet. We think it's the community in New Jersey. Uh, but Mike will tell us for sure. Hello, Mike. Mike, we got gotcha. you. Yeah, yeah, I'm here, man. Right, uh, I ahead. wanted to ask Dr. Sky. Dr. Sky, you obviously have your eye on the sky. It is half our environment. Yes. I want to say that um, have you noticed Nibiru on its 3,600-year orbit coming back towards Earth? Do you not think that the planets are vibrating because of this and NASA has already measured it because the monitors on the uh, the moon? and other planets that they have planted. Um, I'm wondering why the Hubble telescope cannot be accessed because NASA has put a postcard block 
where Nibiru is coming through, through the Orion Belt. Can yeah. you explain Steve, that? Steve, I'm not up on Nibiru, uh, well, so you're going to have to yeah, uh, so let, let me say uh, this, Mike, me I, I appreciate your question, but let me say this. From the astronomical community, I'm in touch with so many of the astronomers around the world because it's part of what I do in the journalism world, and I can say this. I read so much about this, and it goes into the realm, in my opinion, not necessarily of conspiracy theory. I agree with you. Why are we not being told of so many of the things out there? And I'll change subjects on both of you and to the listeners. The same thing with the subject matter of UFOs and aliens coming here to the Earth. But with this Nibiru, if there really is something out there like that, we're not being told anything like that. And maybe, who knows, maybe the things I was just talking about are all caused by some kind of shakeup. But this object would have to be very massive. And, and they're still searching, Mike, for what they call Planet Nine which is something that we do know for a fact is altering maybe some of the planetary orbits out there. I'm going to be doing more investigation on this, but I'm, I'm just as stumped <laughs> as you. I don't understand it. All right, we're going to continue with your questions in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Steve Cates is here, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. If uh, you don't get your fill of Dr. Sky this hour, you can also check out his website and uh, the Dr. Sky blog at ktar.com. A lot to get to throughout the course of the hour. We'll bring you re- election results from Alaska a little bit later. Maliki McCourt is going to be here next hour. We have our midnight panel in our third hour with Marlena Schiavo, Noel Ashman, and John McDonough. We are loaded for bear here on the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. When a star is born They receive a gift or two One of them is this They have the power to make a dream come true Upon a star makes no difference who you are. Billy Joel, when you wish upon a star, we are with a gentleman this hour who knows the stars better than anybody. Steve Cates, aka Dr. Sky. He is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space, and a regular contributor to this program. Well, we get a lot of our information about what's in the sky and what's in space from very powerful telescopes. Apparently the word is that the largest optical telescope is being built of all places in Chile. Uh, Steve, what do we know about this telescope? What's the story here? Well, Frank, not to steal the thunder from the James Webb telescope. This telescope that we're talking about, ground-based, is in the high Atacama deserts of Chile. By the way, that's probably some I've not been there. I'd love to go. I'm sure many listeners would or may have been there. Some of the clearest skies on Earth are a great place to plant an optical telescope. So something that's been started a few years ago is something that knocks the socks off telescopes. It's called ELT, Extremely Large Telescope. Now think about this. The large mirror on the uh, James Webb is 21 feet in diameter, made up of you know sectional mirrors. 
The Hubble has a 7.8-foot mirror, maybe some 94 inches to translate. But when this telescope is built, it'll be a 10,000-square-foot mirror, 130 feet in diameter with 798 segmented mirrors, mirrors inside it. What does that mean? It will be able to see 100 million times better than the human eye, and it also has something where some people may say, well, why are you building a giant telescope like that? Because you have the optic, I mean, the atmosphere, which interferes like it always does. Because when you see a star twinkle, and I always say that stars do twinkle when I'm around my lady friend and other people like children. But the science answer, not to bore people or not to put them to sleep and think we don't have a sense of humor, is stars don't twinkle. So going back to the proposition of why build this massive telescope and the atmosphere you have to cut through, it even has the technology of something called adaptive optics. Sounds like science fiction, and it may be. It has the ability, computer-wise, to take out the distortion that's in the atmosphere. Wow. But some are saying, and it's probably true, that once it's finished, maybe by 2027, I'd love to be there with you and everybody else who's interested for what they call first light. That's when they fire that baby up and take a look at something for the first time. But, Frank, isn't that quite amazing? That's just a most massive piece of equipment and imagine this, you know, people say, well, why not make the Earth a complete mirror and you'll have this gigantic 7,927 wide mile wide mirror? Well, I'll go with the 130 uh, foot mirror. That's that's incredible. 10,000 square feet. Some people don't have a home that big. I don't. But I'm saying imagine a mirror that big. That's like a small community. Yeah, that is for sure. 800-848-9222, your space questions, your star questions, your optical telescope questions. Ugo is in Brooklyn. Hello, Ugo. Hello. I was wondering, uh, getting back to the tilting of the axis, uh, the Chinese are uh, taking mountains, uh, mountaintops off and transporting them into the waterfront to build out half a mile into the ocean, new cities, like in Beijing. Do you think that's going to affect the tilt of the axis? Well, Ugo, not, probably not. I mean, again, I'm not a geologist, but I can just say from common sense that I, you know, where I'm coming from, that amount of material may seem mammoth by our standards, but it's not really enough to do anything to change that size of the earth. Now, Ugo, there was also another theory that I didn't give to Frank and the listeners, is that the glacial melting, according to some, is changing the topsy-turvy balance of the Earth. Well, the last I reported uh, or, or checked, there's all controversy on that, right, Hugo? There's, in other words, some people believe the glaciers are growing. Some people say they're shrinking. But to answer your question, probably not the landmass that they're pulling out to really affect the Earth. I don't think that's a real logical way you know, that would do that. All right, 800-848-9222 if you have questions. The Speaking of China... The Chinese space station is something that has gotten a great deal of attention, and evidently now it's growing in size. What's happening with that? Well, here's an interesting story. Just the other night from my observation platform here in uh, Phoenix, through the, you know, peaking through the monsoon, there's a listing here, and I'll give it to everybody. Just go to heavens-above.com, plug in your city, and you'll see what's on the menu tonight, as I call it. It's got everything there that you'll be able to see in your sky as far as satellites. So I go out and I take a look and I find out that the Tianhe, which is the main core module that was up there for a while, now has, through the Shenzhou-14, which is another mission that they put up another booster, now they have a thing called the Wentian, and in Chinese it means the quest for the heavens, now attached to the Tianhe core. So what am I saying? I see this particular spacecraft moving over Phoenix, let's say, or your hometown, 
and it's now bright enough to be seen easily with the naked eye. So China is building, this is the first in a series of massive deployments of these modules to space. And one day, their space station with the technology may be equal to or surpass that of the International Space Station, which, by the way, is quite old. Now, again, I observed that from Phoenix. I took a pair of binoculars just in case. But this is what's exciting. You can see these particular things in the sky. They're going 17,000 miles an hour, but they sure don't look like that when you see them. They're going slowly across the sky. And then, Frank, what's going to happen shortly, maybe within months, I believe, not to be exact, but within months probably, there's another module called the Wengtian that's going to be up, put up to that one. So it'll be the third module, and that translates into Chinese meaning the dreaming of heaven. So right now there are two men and one female on board this. But, you know, I probably wouldn't want to be them, and maybe you wouldn't either, or the listeners. Imagine being confined in the original Tianhe, which is probably 50 feet long. There's not a lot of places you can go. If As much as I'd love to go to space, and wouldn't you? Imagine being up there for hundreds of days. you got to be a really special oh, yeah. person to handle that. Uh, so it's that, growing in size. That's for sure. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You talk about the opportunity to see potentially the Chinese space station. Anything else that people can look forward to in the near future, seeing in the night sky, either through binoculars, a telescope, or even just the naked eye? Well, Frank, on the other side of midnight, that's where people should be listening to the show and being outside. But here we go. And there's a plethora of things to talk about. Let's start off with the planets themselves. Saturn, I said it last night, was the night of Saturn. Well, tonight or this morning is the morning of Saturn. Why? It just reached a position called opposition. Now, in the regular political world, that would mean one party fighting the other or something. But opposition in astronomy means that an object rises at sunset and is in the sky all night, complementary like a full moon would rise at sunset, and it sets at sunrise. So Saturn right now, and for all the listening audience of the other side of midnight, right now as we're doing this live, if you look into, let's say, the southern sky, or for those people in the far western part of the United States, it'll be more toward like the southwest. But that object that you see with the naked eye, it's fairly bright, not super bright. How about this? It's 823 million miles away from your eye. So it takes light if we look at the whole speed of light, which, by the way, the speed of light, if you ever asked folks, what's the speed of light in miles per hour? It's exactly this, 670,616,629 miles per hour. So let's round it up, say 671 million miles an hour. That's incredible. So it takes the light that you see that we see with Saturn, 73 minutes to get to the sun. Now it gets better. Just to the left by 40 degrees is a really bright planet, and it's visible right now where your skies are clear, Jupiter. It now is 388 million miles away from us. That's a beautiful one, because if you have a pair of binoculars, try this. It's kind of like a Dr. Sky special, right, Frank, for the show as a tip. Hold the binoculars steady, and I'll guarantee you, you're going to get to see a couple of those satellites of Jupiter even in a small pair of binoculars. It happens all the time. Galileo discovered it in 1610. But that object, at 388 million miles from us, it takes light 45 minutes at the speed of light just to get there. And then the show continues, rising around local midnight. And now, of course, we're moving into those time zones where the show is now live. If you look to the northeast sky, you'll see a reddish object, two reddish objects maybe separated by about 10 degrees. 
The lower left one is a star called Aldebaran, the bright star in Taurus, the zodiac sign. And the other object is Mars. It's 96 million miles away, and the light takes about eight minutes to get from the sun to Mars. And, Frank, Mars is going to really show itself toward the end of the year, and I hope we're doing shows then, Mm. because on December the 7th, it is going to have an amazing close proximity to the Earth. So in telescopes, those of you that have more powerful telescopes will be able to see the polar cap on Mars easily. And I've done this for 30, 40 years. You watch with the telescope, and I've seen dust storms come around from the sunrise side. You'll see changes on the planet in 30 or 40 minutes as the planet's turning. But Mars will be covered up by the moon across the good part of North America as we get into December when we have the long night full moon. It's not an eclipse of the moon, but you'll see this full moon. And just to the left, the super bright Mars. And Mars is going to eclipse it. And that's really rare. So there's a lot of things going on. Absolutely. 800-848-9222. If you have questions, 800-848-9222. One of the things that got a lot of attention recently on Earth was the killing of Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. I don't think uh, there were many people on this continent anyway shedding a lot of tears for al-Zawahiri, one of the most sought-after terrorists for the last two decades, and uh, someone who, along with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden, played a a pretty pivotal role in the uh, September 11th attacks. But what are the aspects of this uh, drone killing of Dr. Zawahiri that we didn't hear terribly much about was the actual craft that carried out the killing of Zalwahiri. Uh, apparently it was a Hellfire R9X. What exactly do we know about this particular type of craft? Well, Frank, this is amazing because in the Dr. Sky realm, we cover aviation too with their various sources. But here's what we find out. That the Hellfire missile, which is an explosive missile basically, chemical explosion, it's fired from a Predator drone. General Atomics, one of the manufacturers of the Predator, we all see that there's you know, military people in like a giant video game where they can actually see from the altitude. And some of these Predator drones are so high that those bad guys or people on the ground can't see them up there. So normally they'd fire a missile, and that missile would, let's say, hit a truck or a vehicle on an open road. That's the explosive charge. But with this R-9X, it supposedly was developed in the latter part of the Obama administration – as a very, quote, secret type of weapon. So why are we talking about it? What makes it different? It's more like a kinetic weapon. No, it doesn't have explosives on it. It's listed and laughed about by some people as calling it the Ginsu missile. So what happens if you're standing on a porch, as Al Zawahiri apparently was, they, they ID'd him. Wow, that, that alone is amazing that you could ID somebody like Absolutely. that. Look at how much time, and there was a big bounty. I think if you and I found him and arrested him, I think there was a $25 million bounty. But they fired this missile, very special high-end missile. So basically what's happening is it has blade systems that open up. And like if you were looking at, and don't do it, folks, the bottom of a you know, lawnmower, you see the rotation of those blades. But these are much sharper, much more intense at a higher speed. So what happens if you're standing on the patio? What it does is it grinds up. It's a little graphic, sorry. Anything that it's in its way, and of course human targets are easy to grind up, but they noticed, at least, and I can't confirm this, but they're saying that some of the imagery showed that there was no explosion there, but it looked like a penetration into, into the wall. But whatever was standing in front of it got the effects of that rotary blade. So the technology is amazing that you could do this, and it's almost like science fiction, something that you can't even think about maybe 30 or 40 years ago. But there's also the problem of arming drones now. 
And that's a whole other subject in the military, whether the Chinese, the Russians, or we have this technology. We probably do. You basically could take a drone, not to give people ideas, and if they had a HE, a high-explosive device on it, you could actually fire it like a grenade and fire it into a target. So the technology is overtaking so many things, and that's where this R9X missile supposedly comes from. And that's if this is all, all over the Internet and out there, imagine what secrets we don't know about, maybe even more sophisticated. Right. Oh, yeah. Do we know if this is kind of the standard when it comes to seeking out terrorists in, uh, in the Middle East and other countries? Is this what they do? Is this the hellfire, the, the, the standard operating procedure, or is this an exception because of Zawahiri's prominence? Well, this is what they had when they took out the when when President Trump took out the Iranian general there at the airport. It may be have it may have been that same type of R9X because there wasn't much left of of him or the occupants of that vehicle. But normally, from what I know, and I'm not a military person, is that and these are sources that I could just say with with general knowledge. They're not going to give me all the secrets, of course. Is that most of the time we're using the HE version of that or some other version, which is a high explosive. Because in those cases, you may want to not only – in other words, the, the availability of the target, as this case with Zawahiri standing on an open door or an open balcony, this time you know that there's terrorists confirmed in a moving vehicle. You'd probably want to use the HE weapon to just annihilate the vehicle, and the collateral damage takes out the people. Hmm. All right. We're going to continue in just a moment with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Uh, we'll take your questions. We have several open lines, 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. In the meantime, you can also check out uh, Steve's blog, where he Steve's Dr. Sky blog, where he covers a lot of these issues on a regular basis. That's found at uh, ktar.com. That's ktar.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. I look at you and suddenly something in your eyes I see soon begin. Bewitching me It's that old devil moon That you stole from the skies It's that old devil moon In your eyes The great Frank Sinatra singing that old devil moon. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, you can just uh, join our Facebook group. Uh, Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook. And we will post the uh, artists and the songs that you hear on this show on a regular basis. Coming up next hour, we are going to chat with Malachi McCourt. And then in our third hour, we're going to have a a great discussion with an illustrious roundtable of uh, of interesting people who have a bunch of different expertise in the subjects that we are learning about in the news. But we're joined for this hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, veteran radio and TV broadcaster and edutainer with expertise in astronomy and space. We're taking your questions at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Let us say hello to Bill in Huntington. Hello, Bill. How are you doing? Okay. Good morning. I read this, I read this book 
named Riding Rockets by Mike Mullane. He was a shuttle astronaut in the 80s, yeah. and he had all of his stories right in it. And about one quarter of the stories was about the spacesuit catheter, right? Okay. The, the condom catheter, right? And, right, and, absolutely. And then uh, uh, and what he said was that as his career went on, he got tired of the catheter, and he started using the woman's uh, space diaper. Mm-hmm. Sure. Do they still do they still use the catheter, or, or did they just go over to the diapers totally? Well, I'm not sure, but going over each of these things that you're talking about, I imagine the catheter in any way is going to be like very uncomfortable. I imagine friends of mine who had some surgeries or people, God bless them, that had to use that. But I would imagine that the uh, diaper concept is probably easier. But the big problem in space is you really have to be not a rocket scientist. I can't use that word here on the show, right, because that would be too simple. <laughs> but the reality is, Bill, that they have an issue there. They've had an issue, I should say, with the space toilet. And it's kind of comical because without getting into the graphic details, if you were to sit down, you'd have to make a pretty good seal. And the problem with the toilets were they were actually not functioning properly. So NASA spent with their contractors, what, millions of dollars just to get that whole system improved because any water droplets, even when you're trying to take a, quote, shower, there's no real shower system. You just have to take like a rag and wet it with, let's say, a hand sanitizer or something. But the concept of using a catheter would not be for me. I'd probably vouch for the the diaper. And I imagine that's also uh, something that's popular because, remember, if you go up to the ISS, and and not to knock NASA's ISS and the Russian side, you know, Bill and Frank, it's it's a very smelly place, they say, because there's actually skin particles still floating around in there. For some reason, astronauts say that it's a rather smelly place, so... I don't know. Maybe they need a, a visit from what? Uh, one of the cleaning services. <laughs> you know, it's always interesting how often uh, questions and curiosity seems to lend itself to bathroom <laughs> habits, isn't it? Yeah, Steve? absolutely. And think about how you sleep in space. I mean, I'm not an astronaut who's been there. But again, be careful what you wish for sometimes, folks, because imagine I'm just speaking for myself. I'm not a fan of, you know, I love roller coasters, but I don't do well on them. And especially those centrifugal force rides in simple English where they just spin you endlessly like you're a top. The reality is going up into space, it's really for those with using the expression, of course, overly use the right stuff. Because when you're sleeping, you're actually vertical and you're kind of zipping yourself into like a space sleeping bag. And they're saying that in space, a lot of people are not getting the proper sleep because of noises inside the cabin. It's an unnatural environment. And God help us if a lot of that radiation stuff in space, which is still a concern, look at what happens when they return to Earth. They can hardly, a, a human being, male or female, can hardly stand because of the bone loss that you're getting on long space, uh, long duration space missions. Mm, uh, that is pretty interesting. You know, we've spent a lot of time over the course of the last year or so talking about commercial space travel and privatized yes, space travel, absolutely. not necessarily st- travel that's arranged by NASA or any government entity, but the so-called uh, space billionaires, Elon Musk, Richard Branson, and the like. Um, Vice President Kamala Harris made some news this week. Apparently, she's calling on the U.S. government to update commercial spaceflight regulations, saying the current standards are a little bit outdated. Do we know exactly what uh, Kamala Harris is trying to update and how would the future of the commercial space program look different than its present? Not really sure what she's driving at. I mean, I haven't read that report, 
But there's a whole new area for those that are in school right now that are looking to become, you know, attorneys, because I think we need to understand space law. And it's going to get very involved, even things like on the moon or in space. But I think we need to have maybe a standard set of things. In other words, if you're going to launch rockets, there has to be a protocol. And I know that Mm -hmm. Elon Musk, I think at one time, had gotten into a little trouble at the Boca Chica location down there in southern Texas because there was some conflicts with the FAA on the timing, the safety factors. So maybe, and I'm going to look into that further, I really don't know what's in her plan, but I think it's always good to be better safe than sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Axios had an interesting article yesterday in their space email newsletter, headline, A New Chapter in the Search for Alien Planets. And evidently, What Axios was reporting is that scientists are entering a new era of space science, one that's defined by not simply searching for planets circling distant stars, but by figuring out whether any of them could support life. Evidently, for the past 30 years, researchers have focused on finding these worlds that they call exoplanets, and they've discovered more than uh, 5,000 of them in the last 30 years, but now... Thanks to sensitive telescopes like some of the ones that we've been talking about, astronomers have a chance to learn about how planets form and their odds of habitability. Do we have any idea of all the planets that are out there, exo or otherwise, what percentage of them might have some sort of special circumstances necessary for habitability? Well, that's the million-dollar question, but I'll give you the current stuff, and I think the James Webb telescope is now brought out and put on center stage. What it's going to be doing, or maybe it's done it already, I'm not sure. There's a star system that's not too far from us, maybe 40 light years away. And around that particular star system, there's a group of planetary objects, exoplanets, called the TRAPPIST-1 system. It's made up of seven or eight rocky bodies that are in some sort of a sequence like our own solar system. Now, some scientists say from basically the way they're not they're not actually imaging these objects, so that would be wrong. Maybe the James Webb can actually get an image, a little smear or a, or a dot or a pixel on a picture. But what they do, they use this, we call it the transit system. They actually look at a star, and they can actually detect the dimming, which means more than likely that some planetary object has transited in front of it. So in this case, TRAPPIST-1 has seven or eight of these rocky bodies that they've identified. And they're trying very seriously to come up with a model that actually says, and maybe James Webb will give us some imagery of this, kind of highly unlikely, but who knows? Maybe that big ELT telescope will do it in the future. But what we're looking for is something in what we call the habitable zone. And that is an area, since everything we know is based on like an Earth-like carbon-based life system, we need to be from a star at a certain distance where the probability of life could exist like we know. But more than likely, Frank, this is interesting, and people, I think people would be interested to hear this. Our sun, which is a G-class spectral star, about 865,000 miles in diameter, we have our life system here as Earth. We don't have any other planets that we know of in the solar system with life. But more than likely, astronomers are saying that life or planetary systems in that habitable zone could exist around, get a little of this, red dwarf star systems. And that's kind of ironic because you would imagine they don't put out the heat and light that they, they, like big stars do, or older stars. But these are very old stars, and that's probably one of the regions where we're looking. Because back in 1995, how time flies, the first exoplanet discovery, and I remember it in school, was a star system called 51 Pegasi, where the astronomers were jumping for joy and saying, you know, we found the first planet that's outside the solar system, and you're so right. 
Now there's well over 5,000. So no, not yet. We haven't found one that's a total planetary you know, water world. But we have found a planetary system that we think, or a planet, that is nothing but a ball of lava glowing at thousands and thousands of degrees. I don't think life as we know it is hanging out there. Speaking of uh, red stars, uh, one of the red star giants that uh, is best known to people on this planet happens to be called... Beetlejuice. 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 Not the Michael Keaton, Tim Burton film, but one of the brightest stars in the sky is evidently evolving and dying before our eyes. What is Beetlejuice, the star? Where is Beetlejuice, and what's happening with Beetlejuice? Well, let's take the history of it. Beetlejuice, when it's translated from its origin name, means the armpit of Orion. It lies in the left area of Orion, the constellation. It's a beautiful star that's easy to see with the naked eye, as Orion is, as it starts to appear in the morning sky, maybe early in September, and best around the winter months. It's a star, Frank, that's about 530 light years away. So if we think of that star, it's a massive M-class giant supergiant. We look at our sun, as I mentioned, 865,000 miles in diameter. If you placed Betelgeuse over the sun, its extent of its outer edges of the star would go all the way out to Jupiter's orbit. So if it were 530 light years away, do the math. It means that the light that you see from Betelgeuse now or next month or so left in the year 1492 when Columbus was running around doing his thing. So that's amazing. Everything's a time machine. But what's happening on this star, and I was reporting this, we had some interviews with Dr. Guinan from the University of Pennsylvania, one of the leading experts. Betelgeuse was dimming over the last couple of years. Strangely, it has a 430-day cycle as a star that pulsates. They call it a variable star. But something strange happened a couple of years ago. I watch it with my telescope. Why is Betelgeuse dimming? What apparently happened is a gigantic, massive star quake of sorts happened on Betelgeuse. It blew out a giant blob of material from the star, not necessarily making it a supernova right away. But it was 400 million times, as they allege, as powerful as our sun's CMEs. And the thing was over a million miles wide, producing this giant dust cloud around the star, thus giving an answer to why it was dimming. I don't know if people know this, but Betelgeuse in the 1920s was the first star ever to have its actual diameter measured from an Earth-bound telescope. Hmm. It's that big, it's that tenuous. And a side story, when we used to fly on NASA's SOFIA, this is a program, it's a beautiful 747 SP, the short 747 of days gone by. It's an airborne observatory with a 100-inch telescope, and we would fly regularly as media, and we'd go up to 47,000 feet, and they open the doors. No, we don't get sucked out, but there's a door where the telescope is sending information into the pressurized part. And it looks like a military warplane with all these workstations. What were we doing, Frank? We were up there for 13 hours observing the star Betelgeuse for scientists to understand more about this star. And it is fascinating because one day it will implode and it will go supernova. Now, from the Earth-based view, this is interesting. If Betelgeuse were to go supernova, it would brighten over the course of maybe some months, maybe even sooner. But it would be a star visible in the daytime as bright as half of a full moon. And that's incredible because it's 530 light years away. But astronomers use a standard distance called, uh, it's an absolute distance of say 32 light years as a measuring tool, as far as like it's a standard. If you move a star to 32 light years, 
It has a lot to do with a thing called parallax. But to make it simple, if Betelgeuse at 530 light years was moved to 32 light years in our world, we would never have a, a night because the star would be so bright. Wow. So, so maybe we're fortunate. They call it absolute magnitude. So if an object were moved to 32 light years from its relative position, that particular star would be incredibly bright. And it's, sub, it's such an object that it's, it's amazing. I'm, I've been following this for so long. But get a lot of this. Betelgeuse is probably only 12 million years old. Now, that's kind of hard to believe when we have a star called the Sun that's actually billions of years old. This is an old supergiant star. And sadly, like many of us, uh, and maybe even younger people, if you have a cardiac arrhythmia, arrhythmia excuse me, even a slight change, because it's, it's not, there's no hydrogen really left in, in Betelgeuse. It's used at all in the helium. It's trying to, to burn heavier things, and it gets a heavier core, and one day it will collapse. So even if you had a trillionth of a second, remember before we were talking about the day being like 1.59 right. milliseconds and change, if something changed dynamically in the, in the fusion process of Betelgeuse, it would then just collapse, and that's when you'd get your supernova. So when is it going to happen? People want to know listening. It could be tomorrow. I doubt it. It could be 100 years from now, maybe, or it could be another 1,000 to 100,000 years. But Betelgeuse is a classic star in the sky. It's just an amazing thing, and it's amazing how we're learning so much about how these particular stars and where they think Betelgeuse came from was through the Orion Nebula. It probably was a star earlier in its life that was kicked out. You know, it wasn't welcome there anymore for some reason. And it was ejected out of the Orion Nebula. So that's where some people think the origin of Betelgeuse came from. Stay tuned, right, Frank? Because when we report this one day, I hope to be on your show talking about oh. the rise of Betelgeuse and how everybody in the world is going to look up and see what might be a second sun in their daily lives, something that we haven't had here on this earth for a long time. <laughs> that is wild. People will be saying the name Beetlejuice more than three times, that's for sure. Steve, b before we run out of time, I wanted to. I saw this story yesterday, and I've been meaning to ask you about it. Mm -hmm. American Airlines has ordered 20 boom supersonic passenger jets. Do we have yes. any idea how soon regular airline passengers are going to be able to take these planes, if at all? And do we have any idea what sort of a game changer this is for commercial airline travel? Well, I don't know, but I can tell you this much. That is a real a real deal because they're looking to do this with a company called Boom Supersonic Overture Aircraft. And this supersonic transport, as many people may know, going back into the history, Boeing had a project called the SST, and it was the coolest technology. I remember going to San Francisco to a helicopter museum called the Hiller Helicopter Museum, and as you go in there, there's this airliner you know, cabin in there, like a long thing, and I said, where is this from? And they said, this is the model that they built at Boeing for the supersonic transport. And this is something quite fascinating because now we'll be able to fly around the world making the old Concorde, and that was great in its day, be a thing of the past because now we have the ability to fly higher, faster, and with much more efficient engines, we can fly maybe, oh, sometimes 1.7 times the speed of sound and carry maybe 60 to 80 people on board. But this is interesting because we're moving into a whole new dynamic in the world of aviation, and all this is so great to talk about on your show. Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. As is always the case, whenever we get to, together, the hour has just flown by. I'll look forward to the next time we get to do this. I do. Thank you for having me on the other side of Midnight.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.